everybody and welcome to another AutoCAR Business Live webinar. My name is Mark Tishaw and I'm the editor of AutoCAR and today we're discussing the future of just-in-time manufacturing. This was a revolutionary system that was industrialized by Toyota, almost the equivalent of Henry Ford's production line. But recently, the business model has come under pressure as first COVID, then the semiconductor crisis, and latterly the war in Ukraine have all put untold pressure on the supply chain. So what's the future hold for just-in-time manufacturing? Joining me today to discuss this are Stephen Norman, recently retired as Senior Vice President for Sales, After Sales and Marketing for Opel Vauxhall Worldwide. David Bailey, Professor of Business Economics at Birmingham Business School, and Mark Brickhill, a CEO of Clarice, a company at the heart of the supply chain in this country. Please do remember to send any questions you have for our panel today. Uh, I'll do my best to answer them. I've got, got a list and a feed coming through and we'll get to as many as we can. But first, perhaps we could start off with uh, an explainer from you, David. Could you give us a brief history of lean manufacturing? Okay, so um, you, you mentioned in the introduction there how Toyota had industrialized um, just in time. That's very much the case. So we associate lean manufacturing very much with Toyota and the Toyota way, the Toyota production system. Um, they discovered that by going to America in the 1950s. And originally they went to Ford um, to look at Ford's operations. They realized very much that Ford had massive resources and uh, which they couldn't compete with. They were like, really looking for something different and they found it in a um, grocery chain called Piggly Wiggly, uh, which had introduced this just-in-time system. And Piggly Wiggly revolutionized shopping. So previously you would go into a shop, talk to the shopkeeper, he or she would get you the things. Piggly Wiggly enabled people to go up and down aisles, take what they wanted off the shelves, and then they were restocked. So the consumer demand of lifting something off the shelf created the demand and the flow of stuff through the system. Now, Toyota took that back to Japan and made it into the Toyota way. And essentially, lean manufacturing involves a number of different elements, but it's ultimately about trying to identify waste and the causes of waste, whether that's excessive stocks or too much movement or people waiting for things, uh, eliminating defects. And by tackling waste, and re you reduce cost, but also in so doing, you can improve quality through things like continuous improvement. So it's it's a way, lean manufacturing is a management philosophy of eliminating waste and cost and improving quality in a nutshell. Thank you. Piggly Wiggly, I didn't think I'd heard those words. Okay. <laughs> um, Stephen, why do car companies find uh, lean manufacturing so advantageous? Well, I think the, the answer to that is that if I go back to the beginning of my career, the 1970s, uh, what David has just said, the amount of waste that there was in UK factories, uh, I started with British Leyland. Uh, I mean, parts were piled up on racks to the ceiling um, to make different vehicles to make, allow customers to have all sorts of diverse options. And, and I, think it, I think that those two points that he's just made are, are really determine the survival of the motor industry as it is today. On the one hand, there was huge waste in stock. And on the other hand, uh, there was total absence of quality. Um, and when you visit a modern production facility, be it Toyota, which I totally agree is the, you know, is the benchmark. But to, if you visit any production facility, every nut is married to every bolt. I remember the day when the, the track line operator put his fist in a box uh, a GKN box and take out a handful of screws and nuts and put them together. So I would say that the, the, the short answer to your question is it's enabled the survival of the industry. Thank you. And Mark, could you give us an explanation as to how it works uh, from the supplier side? Yeah, sure. Um, by way of introduction, um, I run a manufacturing business that primarily supplies aftermarket exhausts um rather than into the into the oe sector we have some oe business um, and one of our challenges is we don't have to make exhaust just for one brand of car or one factory but we have to make them for virtually all the cars on the on the road so we're very customer focused so our start point is maximizing service availability and low inventory and low cash flow utilization for our distributors who supply the garages just in just literally just in time when the car's on the ramp primarily so everything we do starts from that delighting the customer point of view. And we do ourselves produce 
just in time. We've got a huge product range, over 12,000 SKUs. Um, no forecasting system could possibly manage that. So we look at past sales rates, have set inventories for, for finished goods, and then manage a three-day manufacturing ticket, which we review review daily. Um, and well, actually, this morning, I've had a meeting at 8 o'clock, look at what was sold last night, do we need to adjust that ticket, and we'll be having product put on stock right now that hasn't actually been made. Uh, we call that ghosting to make sure that literally just in time, we've got what the customer needs when they need it. And then we'll take their orders up until 5.30 today and deliver it tomorrow morning, more than 90% by 12 noon. So that literally is, from our point of view, just in time. It's all about customer satisfaction. Wow, it's a very involved system. So, so perhaps Mark, just to stay with you then, what, why has the, the model been under such pressure recently? And we, we touched on some of the reasons the chip shortage, COVID, but, but what does that mean to you on, on the shop room floor? Well, there have undoubtedly been challenges, but again, if you go back to the customer, it's for, it's for us to manage that so the customer doesn't, doesn't see it or doesn't experience it. But over the last two years, we've had challenges with um, demand. Initially, for example, dropping off a cliff the week after the, um, the Prime Minister announced the lockdown, our business tanked by 87% from one week to the next. So at one minute, we had a challenge with far too much resource and far too much coming through the supply chain. And thank God that the, um, the government launched that furlough scheme um, because we immediately put 210 people on furlough, literally within 48 hours of the announcement being made. And then we built back up steadily and worked with our suppliers to do that. So that was the first challenge. More recently, as the global economy's come back, we've had issues with cost of availability of speed of international freight particularly um, components or supply coming in from the Far East, availability and cost of, of steel. Our other businesses that are liquids, aerosols and blue manufacturing um, component and raw material challenges that um, we've often had to find creative solutions for. And one of our primary measures and uh, our manufacturing ops team and purchasing team do a fantastic job, but one of our primary measures is, is availability. Um, and we look at that literally every every day um, and have to adapt to challenges that I've not seen in my, in my career, but with great teamwork and um, good partnership with customers, then we've been able to, and suppliers particularly, been able to you know, make a success of that. It's also worth saying that over that period of time, others in our industry either um, shut down, closed, um, reduced their operations, stopped investing in innovation and in new parts. That's a critical part of the, of the business as well. And we've been able to win significant market share on the back of, of taking a long view and saying that we're going to continue to drive the strategies that have been, been building our business and serving our customers. So back to your question, Mark, it's like all that complexity and stuff we need to deal with behind the curtains so the end customer doesn't see it or sees very, very little of it. David bringing it even more up to date you know we, we were just talking before about the the lorries all parked up on the way to dover how how will things like that be affecting the um the, the supply chain at the moment yeah it's a it's a huge issue so um you know the uk was in the european union for getting on for 50 years and our economy became deeply entwined uh, and we see that very much in terms of the integration that you saw in manufacturing supply chains so not very far away from where I'm sitting, there's a BMW engine plant. Uh, it makes engines that go into minis, BMWs made all over the world. The blocks are of engines for the engines are casted in France in a joint venture with uh, Stellantis. They come to Birmingham. Uh, they're processed, drilled and milled. They may go to Cologne for further work. Could, could then components could then come back into Birmingham for a, uh, assembly that could then go into a mini made in um, Oxford or a BMW made in Germany or somewhere else which could then be sold back into the UK so the components could cross the channel five times um, now that was very easy to do in a very seamless way when there were no trade barriers we've put some trade barriers back in place through Brexit and through the form of Brexit that we've chosen by not being in the single market and not being in the customs union. So you know, if you introduced extra checks at a border, it will slow the flow of, 
uh, goods crossing. And that's what we've seen. So, you know, those long tailbacks that we've seen at, at Dover is, is partly to do with COVID. It's partly to do with the shortage of HGV drivers. It's partly to do with the failure of the government software systems in terms of uh, being able to register your customs documentation online quickly. But essentially, it's because we've put extra checks in place and that slows the flow down. Now, the problem for manufacturers um, in terms of the just-in-time supply chain systems is the uncertainty that that creates because you don't know how long things are going to get held up for. It, it could go through smoothly. It could be a couple of hours. It could be much longer than that. So that what manufacturers have had to do is start to a degree stockpiling uh, some of the key components that they need. It, it, so instead of just being just in time, there's a degree of stockpiling just in case. Now, when multiple Brexit deadlines came and went, and there was huge uncertainty about what was going to happen, manufacturers started stockpiling components, maybe a day's worth, two days worth, in some cases, for some of the luxury car makers, a couple of weeks worth. That adds to cost. So go back to where we started about trying to eliminate waste. That is a waste. It's an extra cost for business. So the effect of all this is extra trade friction, extra cost, and it puts manufacturers in the UK at competitive disadvantage. They're going to have to work even harder to stay competitive internationally. Stephen, with, with your boardroom experience over, over many years at the likes of Renault, Opel, Vauxhall, PSAs, how, what will the discussions in the boardrooms be at the moment around the, the kind of crises um, affecting manufacturing? Yeah, well, I think exactly in the same way as I did earlier. I'll jump on what um, on what the professor has just said. Um, even if you can stockpile and just in case, given that just in time means that every single derivative, every single version, every single option has a specific component set, it is impossible to stockpile or just in case for any form of diversity. So um, I think one of the, the questions that I want to bring to this uh, forum is, I don't think just in time has helped in any way uh, customer choice. Um, it certainly enabled the survival of the industry and it's massively boosted manufacturer profitability and greatly improved quality, but it hasn't made it any easier for the customer to choose. So to go to your question, what is happening in boardrooms, um, if you as a customer, you go online to configure a vehicle, uh, you will find, I'm guessing here, but I, I would think somewhere between seven or nine times out of 10, you will not have get, get very far down the configuration ladder before there is a pop-up saying, ah, oh, we have something very similar to what you're trying to do in stock or available on a short lead time. And that, of course, is, in my view, uh, is not particularly consumer friendly. In terms of getting around the bottlenecks, I would have thought that there were two main discussions. One of them is exactly uh, as David has said, how do we bring the components in, in a quicker way? How do we avoid the bottleneck, whether it be at the channel ports? Uh, is it by flying components around the world? Uh, so there, were, there are, I would say, hourly discussions right now off the back of COVID and semiconductors about how to ensure production is maintained. But there are also discussions taking place across the industry about how we solve this in the medium term. Um, it is quite likely with climate change that the long term or the medium to long term cost of shipping will not be as low as it's been in the past. So there may very well be relocation of production um, to ensure just in time towards uh, making them closer to the manufacturing plants. But I think the main point I would like to get across is that I'm not sure that any of this is particularly customer friendly. We saw that the demand for new vehicles has not declined over COVID and the semiconductor crisis. The price of used cars has skyrocketed, but at the end of the day, the customer, I would say, is having a more limited choice than he should normally be able to obtain. And well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to pick up on uh, on some of what um, uh, Dave, David said. I broadly agree with, with Stephen and David's point so far, but um, again, bringing the customer back into it and building on the, the Brexit point, we're, you know, we're also a manufacturer that have to sell internationally and sell in Europe. And the, the disruption and time that uh, has, has come as a result of Brexit has hurt British business 
Um, we're in the process of setting up a new 3PL base in, um, in or very close to the Benelux and French border um, so that we can do, uh, I'll get product to customers next day and within 48 hours. We've had to do that because what used to take three to four days for what we used to call restocking orders to customers has pushed out to eight, 10, 12 days. And at the point when we actually changed, changed over, it was, it was 20 days, 28 days, never arrive at all. So you've got that challenge. And the other challenge you've got is you've got, you've got customers who want to buy product. And frankly, dealing with UK PLC is just too much hassle. They don't, yeah. they don't want to go down the route of having to deal with import clearance or the costs of that or time or having to pay VAT at the point of import rather than the point of sale. So I'm afraid there's a, a number of, of challenges that um, have got completely in the way of, of just in time and that is forcing manufacturers like ourselves to hold more inventory closer to customers than was the case beforehand. But again, you know, we have to, we have to solve that problem for the customer um, if we want to grow our business and provide the service excellence that we, that we aspire to. But um, I'm afraid um, government policy in this area is not helping British manufacturing at all. David, is it, is it good for profitability of manufacturers, um, narrowing that choice for consumers? Um, yes, I think broadly, yes. Um, certainly, again, if I take the wide span of my 45-year career, um, and, and, and I was mentioning this to Mark just before we came on air, you know, I remember the time when the customer could choose the brand of the tyre, and I remember there was a premium if you chose Michelin. So, you know, that, that, that's how it was in the 70s, and all of that has now disappeared. Huh? Um, legislation has also stepped in on many of these things, particularly on tyre choice, I would say. But but certainly the the just in time in terms of efficiency and I don't think anybody has set out to limit customer choice, but customer choice has inevitably uh, become more limited. I think I think it can be argued both ways, Mark. Um, you can look at various brands of the major groups worldwide and say many of these vehicles uh, basic underpinnings are identical and then there is a little bit of branding and there is a little bit of of this that and the other in the way the controls are are designed for the for the driver and you could say that is in itself limiting choice and certainly uh, improving profits um, magnificently but again if you look back in motor industry history there has always been a, a fairly wide degree of that but um yes i would say it is other than what what the other mark mentioned the the current problems of brexit and so on i would say it is totally conducive to vastly improved profitability very much so interesting point like i told you to jump in is that the given the chip shortage of late car manufacturers have you know, stopped started production but they've also really focused on a few models yeah, to drive that where they can make a big yeah. premium you know Absolutely. you look for example at jaguar land rover it's been the, the range rover models they've they're focused on so a, a much narrower product range and in some cases the profits have actually gone up now i'm not yeah. sure that's going to be sustainable in the in the longer run but what, what they found is they've, they've really had to concentrate on a, a, a few models in their range in order to sort of really drive their profits which does raise a, a question mark about what they were doing previously were they going for some manufacturers going for growth too much and market share rather than focusing on the most profitable models in their range yeah i think again the as an aftermarket supplier there might be some differences versus the um the points with with OE. Um, so for, firstly, you know, if, if you're um, designing and building aftermarket exhausts, we typically start looking at cars when they're five, seven, maybe eight years old. So all the things we've just spoken about that are uh, sort of pandemic related impacts on, on car sales aren't really yet affecting the, yeah. the aftermarket. So what we do see though, is a, a huge expansion in the range of vehicles that makes models that are on the, that are on the market. Um, whilst the car park's growing, the car park's aging, that, that's, a, that's a help to businesses like ours. But that, that extraordinary growth in range means that we have to manufacture many more products in very, in very often much, much smaller batch sizes, completely different manufacturing setup to an OE supplier plant that will be making thousands and thousands of the same products. You know, we'll, we'll do batch sizes very often 20, 30, 50, um, 100, 
if we get a if we get a production run of 300 500 or even a thousand that's a that's rare in our business mm-hmm. so we have to be very very nimble and responsive to something that we see as a, a um, aftermarket supplier a massive increase in consumer choice over the last 10 15 years and a, and a massive extension in in product range and challenges for the, the for the aftermarket as a whole and parts like light bulbs and brake pads might be fairly fairly common and consistent but um virtually every vehicle has a a different a different um emissions system tailored and and it'll be it'll be it'll be different within even something like the you know the the astra brands virtually every engine size and chassis type has a different exhaust system there's nothing standard in that at all so the challenges are really immense that's very very interesting you know it's very interesting and tell me does that tell us does that mean that the the cost of the customer has gone up because of this uh, diversity and the smaller batch sizes yeah ultimately absolutely it does um and uh, it means that when you you know when you design an aftermarket part and we do try and we do try and standardize as far as we can i mean our our goal is to meet or beat the oe the oe standard all of our product is homologated and and certified but we standardize where we can and and use and develop our own common components but each product has to be um, individually designed tested Uh, that also requires testing on on a vehicle of type and, and type and class um so our development costs are spread over fewer units, and our production volumes are are um, uh, you know lower, and consequently um, you know costs are higher. But that's also partly because the emissions regulations are so very much tougher year on year that the the components themselves, the challenges in making them, is very much is very much higher. And it's worth I guess for hybrids too. especially that uh, it's a, a more of a challenge as well. well actually, hybrids we we love in the aftermarket yeah. is um, um, they run. A electric combustion engine on off on off hot cold hot cold hot cold so actually the failure rates amongst hybrids are amongst the very highest and we can get into a whole oh. debate about the, the green <laughs> credentials of vehicles with two engines and batteries versus the versus um i'm not going to do that because i wouldn't claim to be an expert but what I will so that's say, another webinar <laughs> yeah, that's another webinar but what I, what I will say certainly for for a business like ours the the longevity of their emission systems does not compare well with mm. with diesels, for example. Mm. I think, Mark, um, the, 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 the question about profitability and certainly the comment that David made using the example of Land Rover, which models they decided to concentrate on during the shortage. Mm. I think that also underlines another fundamental in our industry, and that is that not every vehicle uh, achieves its forecasted volumes and its forecast profitability. So I don't, you know, we have a we have a, a, a sort of a, a guidance in the industry that we don't criticise each other's products, or at least we don't do it online. Huh? Um, but every manufacturer has vehicles that. Uh, or what we call in the industries I've worked in, in the manufacturers I've worked in, are once in a 25-year car, you know, which is something that shoots off the shelves and probably beats forecast and certainly beats profit targets. And and I think when I say once in 25 years, as I said, I've been in the industry 45 years, I've seen two or three of them in my entire career, but I haven't seen more than that. And then you've got the also-rans that struggle, and they may struggle worldwide, uh, they may just struggle in China. Uh, they may just struggle in Latin America. It, it, it could be a regional thing. And then you, you then have to say to yourself, well, all the just in time in the world will not make that vehicle as profitable as the program supposed it to be. And uh, again, I'm not going to mention any, any, any vehicle names, but there are uh, UK brands, UK manufacturers who suffer badly with some vehicles that didn't quite make the market. And so when we go back to the question about the future of just-in-time, I think the future of just-in-time is not subject to these, you know, the, the short-term variations. I don't think that can be called into doubt, but I don't think it's the fundamental question that actually faces the industry. The fact of the matter is we still put vehicles into production that are not sure-fire successes. And that's massive. I mean, that can have massive consequences uh, for the model line and indeed for the brand. And you've seen that. I mean, British Leyland didn't disappear for no reason. Saab didn't disappear for no reason. 
um, and um, and so on. So you know, there are some very fundamental things here. How do they end up in production then, Stephen? If they, if, oh my God! I mean, uh, I think we could have a fantastic webinar on that. Um, I can give you two examples, and they're a little flippant, but it might make the the audience smile. Um, one manufacturer where I have worked, and and, uh, and uh, I won't mention the name. Uh, in in you know, twenty years ago, the market research was destroyed. Uh, so that the uh, the project director could get his project approved without the board seeing that the research said it would fail. And of course, fail it did. Uh, but I mean, uh, that, I've only ever seen that once. Um, and often, uh, I think that in the gestation of a project, which these days is, is around about four to five years before launch, often by the time you begin to realise that things are not all as they should be. You've gone beyond the point of no return in terms of investment. And this sounds dreadful thing to say in 2022, but it's probably less expensive to continue than to stop. And again, I've, you know, I've worked in manufacturers where I've seen that happen, including, you know, German manufacturers, and, and I'm not thinking of, um, of Opel Vauxhall. So yes, there are some very, very fundamental issues here. I mean, sometimes coming back to the point you made uh, earlier, Stephen, companies can misjudge yeah. the region's markets i mean you know yeah. we saw that with honda yeah. you have contrast honda against nissan nissan essentially yeah. created the crossover market in europe has done very well out of it yeah. honda misjudged the european market yes. its cars have sold well elsewhere but yeah. it, it really didn't judge the european market very well it had less than one percent of european market share and eventually yeah. it shut its yeah. plant in the uk and it shifted production yeah. back to japan so it, yeah, they, they can make the yeah. Yeah, I love your comment. I mean, it's absolutely right. And and again, I have to be careful what I say, but I think uh, involved in, 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 in what you've just described, there is also a question of dogma. Um, we will not get further involved in Europe than we are or we have been. And, um, you know, once you're faced with that, then this kind of debate becomes very, very difficult. But uh, no, I think I think your example is a great one. And of course, Mark, uh, you know, from Autocar, the one of the issues as well, and one of the big, big, big issues is that it's very difficult to predict what we call in the industry the change in the silhouette shape or the shape of the vehicle, right? So we all remember when um, MPVs came in, like the Chrysler Voyager or the Renault Espace in the very, very early 80s, the end of the 70s. That was a revolution, right? And then the Kia Sportage and the and, and the Freelander, and then it was the, 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 the sort of modest size SUVs. And I think the industry now is waiting to see what the next what the next big big thing will be, and um, we're seeing some. I think we're seeing some movements, uh, some sort of crossover like movements, but it doesn't guarantee that when the customer sees them, that the customer likes the look of them and then goes on to buy them. You know, so th there's a lot of. Remember one thing for very clearly, uh, the main reason for purchase of a mainstream vehicle anywhere in the world is exterior style. Yeah? There are three main reasons for purchasing a vehicle everywhere in the world. There are no exceptions. Exterior style, brand loyalty and price. And, and you get some of those things wrong. I mean, you, you're, you're in big, big, uh, big, big trouble. Huh? Mark, what, what alternatives are there to just-in-time manufacturing? I think we've touched on some of them, which is, um, you know, building, building high inventories, either of, of, of whip, um, work in progress, um, yeah. components, materials, or finished goods. But then that comes with huge cost in, in cash and inventory and ultimately in, in profitability, because you've, if you've got a lot of finished goods inventory, you've made the wrong stuff. Um, and then you're going to end up selling it at a, at a, at a discount. I'm sure that's true of the, of the car manufacturers. I mean, I, myself and my team don't spend any time on what are the alternatives to having the, the leanest process profitable, working daily with suppliers, having the lowest inventory we possibly can, both at our NDC here and also in our, in, in our customers. And you know, to put some, put some numbers against that, um, I joined the business about four years ago. It'd be quite normal for a, for a direct customer, an auto factor in a town to have a range of 1,000, 1,200 parts maybe. But really the volume sales are again, 350. So we've developed our supply chain capability. So as I said, 90% delivery before 12 noon, almost 60% before 9 a.m. We encourage our customers to hold about 350. If they've got 
regional distribution centers or hubs. Maybe they carry 850 and the rest we deliver next day. And with the constant changeover of new parts, we aim to launch about 450 parts every every year. So you've got stuff that's dying that needs to come back, stuff that's growing that needs to go out. So we're constantly refreshing customer range and customer profile. Um, and um, you know, some of our customers literally are on that on a um, uh, 10, 12 week cycle where we'll, we'll look at that and reprofile what they stock. Um, and, we, and we do that to make sure that at the end of the day, the, the garage that has the car on the ramp gets what they need. In some cases, they want it within half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour. So some of our customers will do eight, eight deliveries a day into a, into a large, a large garage and constantly, constantly, um, uh, running to supply what is, what is needed. We don't spend any time on, on, on an alternative model because I just can't, I can't see one that would be profitable or sensible for, for us or more importantly, perhaps the, the customer. No, I think I think um, I, I would agree with that very much. I think we are seeing a, an element of just in case on the manufacturing side, simply because that they have the risk of running short of things and therefore disrupting produ production. But ultimately, it's about the form of just in time system. I think now I think there are things that can be done by manufacturers, as as both Stephen and Mark have alluded to. So not having such long supply chains. You know, if you're yeah. go right back to the tsunami in Japan and it was, you know, certain yeah. semiconductors and, and, you know, even down to a, a pigment that went into paint. So you couldn't get black cars made in Europe. So completely turned Henry Ford's old mantra on its head. You could have any car you wanted as long as it wasn't black. And, you know, so these long supply chains expose companies to vulnerability. So shortening chains i think a degree of reshoring i think is is going to be inevitable so you source closer to where production takes place i think as well what, what uh we found is companies having sole suppliers is problematic you, know, you see that for example at the moment with ukraine where a lot of electrical uh, wiring harnesses are made for some of the assemblers which have had to shut down in europe because they have no other supply and it's not something that can be shifted very quickly because as in the case of an exhaust system that mark was talking about uh, an electrical wiring harness is unique to that particular model so you've got to set up alternative supply and i think one final point as well is that you know the, i think the difference between the car industry and the aviation industry is the the av that the aircraft assembler for safety reasons has sight of the entire supply chain that has not been the case in the car industry where increasingly the assemblers, the OEMs, have worked with a small number of first-tier suppliers who are often then responsible for assembling whole modules of the car. So then their knowledge of the supply chain has actually became quite limited. The first-tier suppliers are often more knowledgeable. So that is how these shocks that have come to the system, whether, you know, kind of disruption from COVID or Brexit or from semiconductor shortage, have really kind of bitten the car makers on the bum because they didn't have that in-depth knowledge of their whole supply chain so it's forcing them i think to look much more carefully at the whole supply chain to understand where the vulnerabilities might be david staying with you what, what do other industries use who what other industry does manufacturing lean manufacturing or another type of manufacturing very well that the automotive industry might learn lessons from I don't think that's, uh, as we just heard from Mark, I don't think that's a goer, to be honest, in the sense that this is a mass industry um, where they're, they're producing a very, very complicated product. You know, a modern car could have 20,000, 30,000 components in it. Now, that's going to change with electrification, by the way. But a large number of components, which have to be brought at exactly the right time, the right components at the right time to the right place to put onto the car, as Stephen was saying. So I don't think there's an alternative for the car industry other than trying to make it work better and, and rethink how it works. Other industries might be different. Even within the car industry, you're going to get some small niche producers who can charge a high premium who can absorb the extra cost of stockpiling or doing things in a different way. So the luxury producers might be, will be very different. But for the mass industry, I don't think there is an alternative, really. Um, but, but, yeah, yeah whether Mark, or not... I, Mark, I, I agree with David. I, I started my career at, at Procter & Gamble with fast-moving consumer goods and working with, um, you know, the biggest grocers in the UK and, and Europe. And... Um, who had stock turns to dream of, by the way, compared to the automotive, uh, the automotive sector. But the only one that strikes me is perhaps being a, a different model, and it's not a good one, is the toy industry. You need to order for Christmas kind of 18 months in advance of the previous Christmas. And if you, if you get it wrong, 
you don't have enough toys to meet the, the demand that kids and families want at Christmas. And, and if you, um, uh, on one hand, or you end up with loads of um, extra stocks. So I think the closer you can get to the customer, the closer you can get to understand what it is that they really want and manufacture what they want when they want it, the closer you can get to that, then the, the, you know, the better for, for your business and also the better for meeting their, meeting their expectations. I mean, example, that's where you jump in again. Go on, Stephen. No, no. I think your comment about reshoring is massive. Um, this will be the first time since you gave us your expose as to when all of this started with the American supermarket. I mean, this will be the first time we that I have ever seen that actually taking place. I 100% agree with you. There will be reshoring and onshoring. And it is coming. It is coming also because of the cost of fuel and the need to depolluate um ships and so on and so forth but but I, I think that's going to be a mark from watercar i think that's going to be a massive shift it's the first time we're going to see a localization in europe and maybe even in the uk and things that have been far flung because the transport costs and whether they go around the world once or twice or three times before they get finally assembled was really irrelevant and i do also accept the professor's point that um prior probably prior to Fukushima in 2012, the, the tsunami, probably prior to that, nobody was really that bothered. Nobody uh. was really that bothered. And we talked a little earlier about semiconductors. I mean, let me give you an, a, a contemporary example of a semiconductor. A semiconductor will be, um, the basic raw materials will be coming from, probably from Korea and from Taiwan. Um, the, there will be uh, an element of engineering taking place probably in Malaysia um, or in Thailand or in Indonesia. Uh, there will be programming certainly taking place in the United States of America. It will probably cross the Atlantic to Germany to be programmed and then returned possibly to North America for final assembly into the box that then goes back into Europe to be put under the bonnet of the vehicle. So. When we talk about semiconductors, we're talking about something that's probably been twice the circumference of the globe without making any effort. And I'm not talking about an exception to the rule. This is how it has been. And because the item is so magnificently tiny, it was not expensive to do that. But the slightest hiccup in the chain means, of course, as, exactly as we've seen, that, uh, and, and I certainly picked up the point uh, uh, from Mark Brickhill, you know, you know, once, you know once we went into COVID and, and demand collapsed by, by 90%, the motor industry turned to the semiconductor suppliers and said, we no longer need your, semi uh, your semiconductors so you can get lost. And, and, and of course, these people then said, right, uh, I'll, I'll have to be careful what I say, keep it clean. But they basically said, OK, so we'll supply it to the electronics industry, we'll supply it to the toy industry, we'll supply it to the gaming industry and we'll supply it to people who don't have your archaic methods of forecasting uh. and supply planning. And, uh. and the problem we have today coming out of the semiconductor crisis is not just a question of, of physical and technical supply. It's also getting our credibility back with these people. Because we, from one day to the next, we said, we don't want anything you can produce. And then a year later, we turned around and said, oh, by the way, not only do we want it back, but we want more. I think that's absolutely right. And also, of course, demand for semiconductors has you know, risen massively with all the home working involved in lockdown and home entertainment and, and the Internet of Things, where even my fridge seems to have a chip in it these days. So, you know, massive explosion in demand. Car industry, in many cases, put itself at the back of the queue and is struggling now to recover from it. I mean, that does raise a really interesting point. I'm glad. Stephen's raised that because if, if an industry, particularly as we go into an electric era, is really dependent on a few critical items, whether it's semiconductors or batteries or e-drives going forwards, yeah. then the, the OEM is going to need a very, very close relationship, possibly even a joint venture with the assembler of that critical component, or might even think about doing it in-house. So whereas before, you know, under just-in-time and in, in the Japanese model, essentially, the, the firms would put things together brought into the factory from suppliers. That was a contrast with Henry Ford's model where it was a massive plant, coal and uh, iron ore would come in at one end and the Model T Ford would roll out the other and everything was done in-house. I think we are going to see a switch back to making it to a degree for strategically important things rather than buying it. There's always been that make or buy question in the industry. And I think the balance is about to shift. Fukushima was mentioned there. No, do, do you, 
could the industry learn more from what happened 10 years ago in the disruption to that supply chain? So when something like COVID and then leading into the semiconductor crisis, could that have been avoided if the kind of microcosm of what happened there could be extrapolated to the whole industry? I think, um, to, to be fair to the industry, it did learn from Fukushima. So we, we saw, for example, the contrast between, um, say, Honda and Toyota, which were badly affected because they were very reliant on supplies from Japan. And there was a lot of disruption. I think Honda plant was shut down for six weeks or so at Swindon. The contrast with Nissan, where through its relationship with Renault, had second sourcing possibilities in Europe. So in the, in the wake of Fukushima, Japanese firms did look to source more, more locally. By locally, I mean in the European Union for the European market, in North America for the for North American assembly. But of course, if you're sourcing more in a particular place and then COVID hits, you've still got a problem. So they, they to a degree, shortened supply chains and tried to kind of localize them in relation to where the regional footprint of production and the regional market was, but then were hit by more local shocks in terms of COVID or the war in Ukraine. So I think there's been a degree of learning. I think what's going to be interesting as we shift into an electric era is how this will pan out because we're seeing sort of massive scale collaboration between some of the big players. Now Ford having to collaborate with Volkswagen to get access to essentially Volkswagen platforms for its models in Europe. So the, the, the underpinnings There'll be a few mega platforms, I think, mm -hmm. and then companies will put different bodies on top in effect and mm -hmm. you know, try and offer a, sort of different mm -hmm. services to consumers. How that has an impact, I think, is going to be really interesting. Yeah, that whole area of, of dual sourcing from um, can throw up problems of itself if you get the wrong source. So the example that's affecting the transport industry and private car drivers at the, at the, at the moment is the supply of ABLU, all Diesel, diesel cars, Euro 6, require it. Trucks have been requiring it for, for 20 years to eliminate NOx emissions, etc. Well, a very great quantity of, of ABLU solid prills, which are diluted in the UK, have been supplied from Russia. And obviously they're now being, you know, either consumers are rejecting that or rather companies are rejecting that or they're being embargoed. Ships can't get into British ports rightly, um, given what the Russians are doing. So I think a number of people who, for years have thought right we're going to buy cheaply from in this case russia and try and be smart uh are finding that that's a problem so uh, in our business where we currently supply over 30 million liters we're fortunate we source from um from yara international all of their production is is in in western europe um it's not not being as directly affected by the ukraine crisis obviously natural gas has an impact but but you know it's it's that those challenges um are things that you couldn't easily have forecast are having a massive having a massive impact um and it goes far beyond the cost increases that we see in in diesel or petrol in the case in the case of ablu the um price has gone up five or six fold dwarfing the increases that we've seen in petrol and goodness. these motorists are having to pay it goodness that's very interesting i had no idea of that it's very interesting just to go back to your comment on fukushima again uh, you know this is a, a real life anecdote um, and, and certainly uh, D David will be aware of this. The, the first casualty in terms of, um, you know, a major component was the injection systems for diesel, for diesel cars. So the, 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 the factory basically producing for the uh, German manufacturer who signs most of the diesel injection systems uh, fell down, unfortunately, with huge loss of life in the tsunami and there was no supply and so the only vehicles that could be built for you know what we call b sector or c sector cars so small family hatchbacks and lower medium family hatchbacks uh, were petrols where of course the demand was relatively low at that time 2011 2012 and so this is one example where you could say that the customer uh, gain benefit and the manufacturer lost out because in order to get the customer to change his habits to go out of a diesel vehicle into a petrol vehicle prices were reduced by in the case of, of a brand where i was working at the time which uh, uh, which david mentioned by up to 30 35 percent so the only vehicles that could be built were vehicles were the customers didn't want. And then, of course, being made in much greater quantity to keep the line speed at an economic level. Uh, and so the, the, the offset that the manufacturers found at that time was to reduce price. 
But I think that's the only example I can think of where we actually took our trousers down rather than stop production. I'm sure today, well, I mean, today we're in the opposite situation, but I'm sure today we would say, okay, well, we will, we will just not produce at all. Mark, reassuring to be mentioned a couple of times. Um, we could go into that in a bit more detail. What benefits does that then bring to suppliers such as yourself? What benefits does it bring to OEMs? And could this be an example of uh, uh, cost benefits coming back to consumers? So a couple of points to that. We we supply some OE OEM aftermarket programs. Um, and I think for us, there's a definite uh, opportunity both in the UK and Europe to take a, a greater share of, of that business. Um, and that's partly also as the vehicle park ages, the OEMs themselves are saying that we want to hang on to the aftermarket servicing for longer mm. and OE components you can't you can't sell those to cars that are five, seven, ten years old. So they'll they'll often have a good, better, best in their approved program. So some of that becoming um, and in our case, you know, products like exhausts, it's not economically viable to ship to ship large volumes of those over over large distances. Quite similar to, to tires, to be honest, in, in many cases. Um, so that's an opportunity. Um, we're a, a British-based manufacturer. We do buy some componentry um from you know china india etc um but in case more recently we've probably had to increase um purchasing here or our own manufacturing capability to to produce more so that means investing in in capex in kits so that you're less reliant on on other people um get that right and it can improve your profitability back to some of the points that were made made earlier so again it's just as i said at the start is understand what the challenge is and understand take an opportunity from that and then invest behind that to better satisfy the customer at the end of the day that's what we're trying to do all the time david with electric cars is just in time just as suitable for them more suitable uh, yes i think it is i mean i think just picking up on the last point if i can re reshoring we found before uh, Brexit, the Brexit, the European membership referendum, about one in six manufacturers reshoring activities to the UK. And what was driving that was things like increases in costs overseas, issues around quality, uh, the vulnerabilities that we've been talking about in the supply chain. Mm. But also there was a, a, a need to be near to, to the consumer and respond in the way that Mark was talking about quickly to demand changes. And you know, you see that in other industries, you know, Zara famously, in terms of fast fashion doesn't buy clothes from the Far East because they're on a ship for six weeks or, or longer. They source in Europe and, and North Africa to, so that as demand changes, they can respond very quickly. So there's that's, those are the sorts of things driving reshoring. But there are barriers to it, I think, in the UK. Uh, things like the availability of skills, um, the access to finance to invest in the capex that we were just hearing from from Mark. Uh, the availability of land in some cases, you know, I go around Birmingham these days and a lot of the old manufacturing land is gone. It's shopping centres, it's housing. So it's often quite difficult to make this happen. Now, I think the government needs to be doing much more through an industrial policy to support reshoring if we think that's important. So coming on, on to electric cars, yes, I do think that's um, going to be important. But I think the issue there is to what extent car companies are going to be doing it in-house. Or, or buying things in. I think certainly think they're going to need a much, much closer relationship with strategic partners, particularly on things like batteries, on e-drives and on semiconductors. So it's, it's you know, if, if you're going to have a just-in-time system, you need a, a really, really good link with the supplier. Now, manufacturers will have that with first-tier suppliers, but it's going to be absolutely critical, I think, in the electric car industry. And with each other, David, and with each yes. other. Yes, I mean, I, I, you know, as a car fanatic, like I'm sure we all are, uh, I would love it to be, as you just described, that there will be this integration with the tier one suppliers and so on and, and so on. But I, I have a have a very strong sentiment that, in fact, it will be that and um, sharing and pooling uh, componentry for electric vehicles uh, between manufacturers. Now you can then go back to the um, to the to the famous declarations, uh, which we will all remember of um, of the late Dr. Marchioni, who was saying, perhaps not the first person to say it, but certainly the most vocal and the most vociferous, saying that there were still far too many players in the industry, and that there was only room for six. And I remember him actually saying, when I was working in Fiat, that he thought that six was probably too many as well. 
and we're still a long way from that. So I think the, your question, uh, Mark, about uh, is just in time going to be uh, a key issue and is it going to be a, a game changer for the electric vehicle or vice versa? I think it's incredibly relevant. I think it, this is going to be the onset of the next round of consolidation. Now, whether that is at group level, brand level, uh, supplier level, uh, I'm not I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not in, in David's shoes and, I, and I'm not in, in, Mark, in, in, in Mark's shoes. I don't, I don't know exactly, but I'm sure that this will herald uh, um, the next wave of consolidation. Um, question on this topic around, around reassuring from, from Matthew Croucher, a senior economist at the SMMT, and I'll, I'll put this one to the floor and anyone, anyone wants to jump in. Does the pressure to reshore likely put UK automotive more at risk that centralisation of production will move to key locations and the UK finds itself increasingly isolated? The shift to EVs pushing this reappraisal of supply chains too. What can be done to better support the UK industry given limited government funds versus what other countries are putting behind their automotive sectors? Good question. Yeah, great, great question. Um, certainly anchoring uh, car production in the UK by producing batteries at scale is going to be absolutely critical. So, you know, batteries are heavy things to move around. They're not like the semiconductors that Stephen was talking about. So car production will need batteries being, mass car production will need batteries being made in close proximity. So if batteries are being made at scale in the EU, which huge investment is going into both through the European Battery Alliance, but also government supporting it, you know, massive investment in lots of gigafactories. If we don't have that in the UK, it's difficult, I think, to see how mass car manufacturing will survive here. Now, we've had some good news regarding Nissan and Envision. Um, British Fault, I think, have overcome all the odds so far. Let's hope they can keep going. I was very skeptical about their ability as a, a new company to actually get to the point where they make batteries, but they've got to find a customer. The, the next big issue, I think, is about Jaguar Land Rover, who they choose as a battery partner, and can the batteries be made in the UK for them? So, you know, we've really, really got to think about what is the EV supply chain going to look like and make sure we have large scale battery manufacturing in the UK. The other element to that is about the actual Brexit agreement, as Matthew will know better than me, in that within the annex, there's, there's a, a point that from the end of 2026 onwards, a car made in the UK or the EU has to have a battery made in the UK or the EU, otherwise it will face tariffs. So if we're not making batteries, they're going to have to come from the EU, in which case car production will go there. So, you know, in sort of thinking about what supply chain do we need in the future and how do we have an industrial policy to support that and make it happen, I think it's going to be absolutely critical. Yeah, One of the things you? that... Sorry, no, sorry, Mark, please. No, please, please, please. Sir. I was going to pick up on this in, uh, on the industrial strategy point. I was at Goodyear Dunlop at the time of the 2008-2012 economic, uh, economic shocks. Hmm. And... Um, uh, as a you know, working in a European business at that time, um, with British plants and European plants, we saw the advantages as a as a European global manufacturer of industrial strategies being well applied to manufacturing plants in Germany, Luxembourg, France, etc. And an absence of the same in the UK, which left us relatively uncompetitive within the within the international company. Um, when I was at Goodyear, we had three factories in the UK. Today there, are, today, there are none. And I suspect those decisions were made after I left, but I suspect the lack of, of a level playing field on, um, with an international, industrial strategy that supports manufacturers, I suspect that played a role, as did um, um, Brexit in some, in some cases. And picking up on the point on labour and on skill and skills, you know, we're a business that can employ people in... Um, operators um, on production lines that are low skill right through to the most skilled design engineers that you know, we have an engineering business that supplies the like of Hitachi Rail and, and Alstom Rail. Right? That, so really, really high-end skilled um, um, uh, design engineers. And there is a shortage, not just of, of, of skilled um, talent, but it's hard to recruit labor at the at the start you know, in theory great apprenticeship programs to develop 
um, people um, and start people in their careers and train them lifelong training up to and including degree level apprenticeships, which are very attractive and financially attractive to both employers and to you know, employees. And it's a different path from going down the university. I think the government needs to do very much more on industrial strategy and one specific point on apprenticeships. If you're an SME with less than 250 employees, you get great support. Um, we're a successful SME with more than 250 employees. So a lot of those incentives and advantages to take on apprentices and, and help are, are not available to, to us. And I presume that's true for some of the larger tier one um, uh, manufacturers and OEMs. So I think there's a, a complete lack of manufacturer-friendly industrial strategy in this country, which needs to be addressed. Yeah, I was just going to say what what you know, and just to bring in a little bit the sort of the hum, human element. One of the things we mustn't forget is that the UK market uh, is worth two and a half million new vehicles a year, you know, cars and under three and a half ton vans. And although that's smaller than Germany, it's it's still massive. Um, it's bigger than France, it's bigger than Italy, and it's significantly bigger than Spain and bigger than everywhere else. And uh, that has huge leverage. Um, in I'm not a I'm not an expert on government policy, and I'm sure the professor will will correct me if I say the wrong thing. But that that is a lever that we we must learn in the UK how to pull. Um, even it's even one of the reasons why people still go to huge lengths to manufacture right-hand drive vehicles, which you know is a pain in the butt for a manufacturer uh, to have to tool up for right-hand drive. So please remember that we're talking about one of the most important car markets in the world. And in addition to that, when you then factor in the what we call the soft factors, like the passion that there is in the UK for motor vehicles, then I think that you have a couple of perhaps. Uh, marginal arguments from an economic point of view, but nonetheless are very, are very vocal and very easily, easily debated. Please remember that. I, I certainly agree. It's hugely uh, strategically important, you know, in terms of high quality employment, exports, yeah. research yeah. and development, yeah. and that what what's remains is fundamentally competitive. So it's all yeah. to play for. I fully yeah. agree with you in that sense, but I think we need a much, much more supportive industrial policy to think about where we want to get to, not just yeah. by the and have it more joined up. So. You know, setting a 2030 target for banning petrol and diesel cars, good idea, I think, in terms of saving the planet. But how we actually get there and take the industry with us so that the, the cars are made in the UK rather than imported, I think we need to think that through much more. I agree. I, I absolutely agree with you. And, and again, that's where I think our passion needs to come in. You know, our passion needs to come in. So I think we have to be perhaps, uh, yeah, not, you know, not little Englanders, but I think we have to stand up for ourselves. I 100% agree with you. And maybe, uh, you know, you mentioned some of the, the you know, the, the professional uh, bodies in the UK, uh, you know, maybe they need to also behave differently with government uh, to, to say, well, look, you know, why should we be a second cousin uh, or a second relation to France or even to Germany or to Italy or to Spain or to, there is no reason. There is no reason why our manufacturing base should be uh, should be mortgaged in this way. No reason at all. And when I see what we did in, in Vauxhall to reindustrialize Ellesmere Port and what we did in Luton while I was there, I mean, I'm incredibly proud of that. Incredibly proud of that. And uh, and, and you mentioned Nissan and uh, yeah, so I think, yes, I think there is a huge amount to play for. And, and I, I think, Mark, uh, from Autocar, we need to yeah, we need to fly the flag a little bit more robustly, perhaps. Absolutely. I sometimes think the success in, in British manufacturing comes despite government policy, not, not because <laughs> of it. Um, you know, right, right now, and it's, it's, it's anecdotal, but it's you, you hear it more and more in, in the media. But right now, one of our sales managers is in Bucharest trying to rescue his Ukrainian family. He's been, he's been there for nearly four yeah. weeks. The bureaucracy of getting a family, including a, a, nine, a now nine-month, was eight-month-old baby, safely into the UK is incredible. And the relevance of this discussion is there are still 8,000 Afghan refugees in hotels who aren't able to get into the workforce at a time when we're desperate to recruit people. There are 200,000 British families that have volunteered to host wonderful people who volunteered to help host Ukrainian refugees who want to come here and, and work. And the government policy is just not joined up in terms of how do you get those people safely into the country and into the workforce that's a benefit to everyone at a time of of labor shortages and you know it's, it's a much broader point, point than just in time of manufacturing but the the lack of joined up thinking across government is just staggering whenever there's any kind of crisis you see it very very keenly mm. got 
a minute left. David, I'll, I'll come to you for a final. You can give me one sentence answer on this one. <laughs> um, I think uh, no pressure. Just in time manufacturing, I think it's clear it's here to stay from our discussion today. Do you expect it in five, ten years' time to be better withstand the shocks that we've seen in the last few years if they happen again? It'll have to be. Um, so manufacturers are going to have to... I, oh, the, the assemblers have got to think much more carefully about the, the entire length of their supply chain um, and to build resilience uh, into it. Um, maybe in shorter supply chains, maybe in second sourcing, being closer to where demand is, all of those things. So it's, they're, they're going to have to get better. The, the danger is if they don't, um, they won't necessarily survive. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, I'm afraid we must leave it there. We're out of time. The hour flew by again. Um, thank you so much to Stephen, David and Mark. Um, it's very kind of you to give up so much of your time to us today. Pleasure. Fascinating to listen to you all. And I feel like we've gained some real insight <laughs> into lean manufacturing. Um, so thank you, everyone, to uh, uh, watching and listening today. And um, we'll see you next month for the next Autocar Business Live webinar. Goodbye. Thank, thank you very, very much. much. Indeed. Goodbye. Thank you for having us. Goodbye.